As human beings, we love certainty. How often do you find yourself saying or thinking, I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure you know this. I just want to make sure this is the case. We love certainty. We don't like chaos. We don't like confusion. We don't like it when it's unclear or simply uncertain. Now, some people are more on the spot, immediate, like to do things spontaneous. But in general, we like things to be certain. Now, this morning, we want to look at the reality that one of the areas where we both want and desire and can have certainty is in the matter of the Christian life. We can have certainty about our Christian life, about the reality of whether or not we are Christians. Now, struggling with assurance, the assurance of salvation, or experiencing that assurance of salvation is a matter, first and foremost, of personal importance. I mean, at the end of the day, you want to know, are you a Christian or not? Your eternity depends on whether or not you are a Christian. If someone were to ask you, are you a Christian? Or would you call yourself a Christian? What would you say? Or would you even, what would you say even this morning? Some people... Uh, may not be ready to answer affirmatively to that question, even now. And part of the reason for not being able to answer affirmatively is perhaps because you are not a Christian. Perhaps you have never come to a place of repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus alone, in His death on the cross as a payment for our rebellion and to trust in his resurrection as a, as a savior who has conquered death because he has paid in full for the sins of all those who trust in Christ for salvation. Perhaps you've never experienced that act of responding to this gospel that we Christians proclaim and therefore you're not sure if you're a Christian or perhaps even you're pretty sure that you are not. A Christian. For others, they may struggle with the lack of assurance, the lack of certainty, even though they actually are Christians. Perhaps it's because they compare themselves with an idealized profile of what a Christian should be. Or perhaps they are reminded of the struggle with sin in their daily walks and their inconsistency in that struggle and the battle with sin causes them to wonder if they are truly Christians. The, the need for certainty, understanding with certainty whether or not we are Christians is, is both a desire, but it's also a privilege that Christians can have when we are Christians. So this issue is a, a, a matter of personal importance, but it's also a matter of church importance. Uh, how do we know if someone who professes to bear the name of Jesus is a genuine believer? 
and not just a false professor. When a church affirms someone into membership, it's a corporate affirmation that to the best of our knowledge, it seems that, the, that someone's profession of faith matches with their life. Uh, when the members of the church gathered last Sunday in our members meeting and we presented eight membership candidates, um, the members of this congregation affirmed that to the best of their knowledge, the profession of these eight candidates, their profession of faith, and their life matches. So that members of our congregation have a corporate responsibility to affirm, not in an absolute way, we can be, we can be wrong, we can misassess, but when we receive someone into membership, we don't just put a name on a roster of our membership role, it's an act of corporate affirmation uh, of someone's walk with Christ. It's, an, it's a great privilege that we can have, and it's a great responsibility that we are called to exercise. So, members of the church, we should know what are the categories, what are the biblical truths that can help us both assess and affirm someone's profession of faith, the certainty of whether or not someone is a Christian. Romans 8 is one of the passages in the New Testament that is filled with biblical truth that helps us understand the categories that give us assurance of the Christian life. So I invite you to open God's Word to the book of Romans. We'll be reading chap from chapter 8, verse 12 to verse 17. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 to verse 17. Here is the word of the Lord for us this morning. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts as we hear. Let's pray. Father, you have been so generous and lavish with us in Christ. You have been so generous to give us also your Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you for your word that we have just read. And we thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that brings assurance into our lives for all those who have been renewed by your Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. Father, we pray that this word would bear fruit in our hearts this morning. We pray that you would help me preach this word with clarity. We pray that you would help all of us to hear this word so that we may respond in a way that honors Christ, in a way that edifies one another. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
In the text that we looked at last week, at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul's main point, the first 11 verses of chapter 8, was the certainty of our right standing with God. The certainty of our right standing with God is found in the new life from the Spirit, in regeneration, in the new birth. That new life is seen in the, in the change of mindset that, that we experience, that change we experience in our minds. Our, our minds become no longer set on the things of the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit. And that change of mind is a fruit of the new life that the Spirit of God has produced in us. Today's passage, we continue with another evidence for that certainty. How do we know that we have come to experience the, the Christian life, the new life that the Spirit produces in us? Today's passage will give us more evidence. And the evidence that we see in our passage today is twofold. Uh, it's uh, our battle with sin is one evidence. And the second evidence is the Spirit's confirmation of our adoption. And actually in this passage, there's, there's three images that all work together to make these two evidences strong. The first image is an image of a debtor. The second image is an image of a, of a son or children. And third image is the image of heirs. Let's see how these images are building together this argument that Paul makes that we can have certainty of our Christian life, of our life with God. And what we see in these images is a different obligation, a new family status, and a new family privilege. Let's look at each of these as we work through this passage. Uh, the red thread that works through these images and these sections together is the fight against our sinful nature through the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives. And Paul wants to assure us that the certainty of the Christian life is seen in the battle with sin as the Spirit confirms our adoption. The certainty of the Christian life is seen in, in the battle with sin as the Spirit confirms our adoption. Let's look at each of these sections, the three sections that I mentioned. A new obligation. We see this in verses 12 to 13. How do you know? How do you know with certainty that you have a new life from the Spirit of God inside of you? How do you know the Spirit of God is living in you? There's a number of, of evidences, but this text, the first answer that this text gives us is, it's evident in your battle with sin. After spending time reminding us that there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's the, the big announcement at the very beginning of chapter 8. For there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After making that statement, Paul wants Christians to know that the condemnation free life that is given to us by the Spirit shows itself through a change in our obligations. 
an obligation remains, but to a very different purpose, to a, in a very different direction. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the Spirit. Sometimes Christians get tired of hearing what the Bible is against. And sometimes we just want to focus on, well, tell me what are we for? Have you heard people being frustrated by the, all the do-nots? And let's just focus on the, but tell me positively what am I supposed to do or be? And in our frustration, we have swung the, pen, the, the pendulum to the other side where it just irritates us to hear anything of the, of the do nots. But I wonder if we have sung the pendulum to an extreme. Because here Paul is actually telling us a debtorship that we have and he's just telling us the negative part of it. He's just saying, we are debtors but let me tell you what we are debtors not to. Let me tell you what it is not for. It is not for the flesh so that we would live according to the flesh. The Christian who hears the words of verse eight, I mean chapter 8, verse 1, there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Jesus, may wrongly conclude that Therefore, since there is no more condemnation uh, against sin, the fight with sin is over. And that would be a wrong conclusion. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that the fight with sin is not over just because the punishment has been paid for. Just because the bill has been paid for. Paul wants to correct such a conclusion. And he wants to remind us that an obligation remains, but not to the old master of sin. Later in chapter 13, Paul will speak to Christians about an obligation that we still have, a debtorship. In chapter 13, he will say it's the debt to love one another. An obligation. And here the word obligation or being in debt is used positively. So much in our society and most of our experiences, being in debt is not a positive experience. But here, the image of being a debtor is used in a positive manner. And Paul wants to correct the, what are we indebted to? What is our obligation to? No longer to the flesh. The implication is, it's to the life of the Spirit that the Spirit of God has brought inside of us. In this text, the image of being a debtor is used with this positive connotation to describe our ongoing obligation as Christians. It's an obligation that has changed its direction. So sometimes Christians, with the best of intentions, may sort of get frustrated to, with this idea that Christianity is just uh, a bunch of rules, obligations. And sometimes we, 
we associate that with legalism or a works-based approach to Christianity. And certainly some have fallen in that trap to think of the Christian life, the relationship with God, as just the transactions of do's and don'ts. That is a real danger that we want to stay away from. At the same time, wanting to correct that danger, we would swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme to assume that there's now no more obligation. Yes, there's no more condemnation, but an obligation remains. And that obligation is now to live according to the Spirit of God that He has put in us. And what does the Spirit of God do when He dwells in us? Well, there's a number of things He does, but in our text, Paul wants to highlight that the Spirit of God leads us to fight sin off. And there's actually a, a much stronger image that Paul uses for our obligation to fight sin uh, in our lives. He uses the image of putting to death. Look at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, in other words, if you continue to live your obligation to the flesh and live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... You will live. Did you notice the contrast of verbs here? We either are living according to the flesh or we put to death the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of the body, which is the same. It's two ways of speaking about the same thing. Every one of us who are Christians have a choice to make. Uh, will we let our sinful nature dictate how we live our lives, or will we engage in mortifying, putting to death the sinful impulses, the sinful desires, the sinful thoughts, the sinful way of life or of thinking about life? Now, what are the deeds of the body? You might say, if I'm called to put these to death, what exactly am I called to put to death? Well, Paul doesn't give us a, a detailed description in this passage, but he has other passages where he speaks clearly what are the deeds of the body or the deeds of the flesh. One of those passages is Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Listen to what Paul says there. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what Paul lists as an example of works of the flesh that we are called to put to death. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy, divisions, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, the list is not over. We could go on. And Paul says, if you see works of the flesh inside you, tempting you, calling you to live out according to these patterns, our obligation as Christians, the Spirit of God who now dwells in us, gives us this call and empowerment 
to fight against these tendencies, against these impulses, against these temptations, and not to live according to them. Oh, friends, sin in our lives is like weeds in a garden. Those of you who have done with that, deal with that, know what that means. You pull up the weeds, but they keep coming back. Sometimes when we pull them up, we are very fortunate to actually pull out the, weed, the, the root itself. But most often, the, the root breaks down somewhere. Sometimes it's at the very surface. Sometimes it's just beneath the surface, giving you the impression that you got it out, when in reality you haven't. And you just want to, got to wait a few more weeks, a month or two, and it comes up again and again. Putting to death the deeds of the body, the sinful impulses, the sinful desires, the sinful thoughts. It's like pulling weeds out. It's a never-ending process. You pull it out now and it shows up again. Tomorrow, next week, the month after. But the work of the Christian, the obligation of the Christian under the spirit, under the leading of the spirit, is keep pulling those weeds out. Don't be satisfied with letting the garden of your life just be invaded by those weeds and let those weeds grow. If you live according to that, you will die. So you have an option. You either put to death those sinful instincts or you yourself will die. Choose. Now when Paul says... Put to death the deeds of the body. He's calling us to a personal responsibility. No one else can do that for you. The church cannot do that for you. Your friends cannot do that for you. There's no church program that can do that. There's no accountability that can ultimately do that in your place. You must be engaged in this work yourself. And if we're Christians, uh, we should not adapt to the passive attitude towards our sins. As one Bible teacher put it, when it comes to fighting sin, we don't let go and let God. As if we'll just be passive about this thing and just let God do the work for us. We must be personally engaged, take responsibility. At the same time, we're not doing this work on our own strength. We only can do it through the Holy Spirit who is living inside of us. That's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 13, but if by the Spirit you put to death. So don't hear that the call for personal responsibility is to do it on your own strength. Oh no, on your own strength you would never do it. But the Spirit of God who lives inside of you leads you to engage in this battle. So by the Spirit, put to death the works of the flesh. The reason why our fight with sin is a good barometer of our Christian life is because our fight with sin is an indicator of the Spirit's presence and work in us. We put to death 
the deeds of the body by the Spirit inside of us. So the question comes, how do you know the Spirit of God is in you? How do you know the life of God brought by the Spirit of God is in you? People may come up with various answers from having a fuzzy feeling to having some sort of an emotional response to even having some supernatural experiences or supernatural uh, yeah, experiences of, of some sort. Now, if these exist without an ongoing fight with sin, these experiences are self-deceiving. Because one of the certain evidences of the Spirit's presence in our lives is that the Spirit leads us, motivates us, enables us to fight sin in our lives. That does not mean that it will be done flawlessly, consistently. It does not mean that somehow this battle will be uh, airtight. No, such an absolute expectation is is idealistic and not helpful at all. But it does mean that the Spirit works in us, enables us, motivates us to want to put to death the works of the body. Oh, friends, this change of obligation from living according to the flesh to now putting to death the deeds of the body has an effect on our future. Look again at what will happen to us in each of these scenarios. In, in verse 13, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, we need to make an important clarification. Our fight with sin is not what causes us to live in the future. The fight we're called to engage is not the cause of our future eternity. Only the grace of God can bring us the new life that changes our destiny. So don't read these words as if my fight with sin causes uh, where my destiny will be. Rather, our fight with sin is an indication of whether or not we are on the trajectory towards death or towards life. Have you ever been on a journey, on a trip, and all of a sudden realize you're going in the wrong direction? I remember years ago when we would go up to Ohio, my family and I, Anka and I and the kids were really young, at the time when GPS was not yet on your phones, um, and we took a turn on one of the interstates. Instead of going east, um, we wanted to get to Nashville, we took a turn and just went straight north. We were going to see some family in Nashville on the way. And it was about two hours until we realized we were going in the wrong direction. No GPS that's giving you constant reminders of wrong turn, turn around. We were talking and just not paying attention to the signs. Two hours later, it was too late for us to turn back so we can make and see, see our friends in Nashville. We just kept going north. In that case, the stakes were not that high. We missed seeing some friends. We were sorry for that. But we eventually got to see our family in Ohio. 
But when we miss out this signpost of our battle with sin is a signpost of whether or not you're going in the right or wrong direction. And Paul is saying, if you, if you keep living according to the flesh, it's a sign that you will die. You are on the trajectory of death. If you live according to the Spirit, and by the Spirit putting to death the works of the flesh, you are on the trajectory towards life. That's what Paul is saying here. So that when we think about what is my certainty, what is the evidence for the certainty of the Christian life, one answer that he gives us in this passage is your battle with sin is an evidence of whether or not the Spirit of God is at work in you, and he has brought that new life with God. Oh, friends, if there is no fighting with sin in you, there is no evidence of the Spirit's work in you, because the Spirit will lead you to fight off that for which Christ has died. The Spirit will lead you to fight off that for which Christ has died. So when you are letting your life be led by the Spirit's leading and impulses, you are affirming that what Christ accomplished for you on the cross is good, desirable. This is not about legalism. This is about the confirmation of the triune God working through the Son to accomplish our redemption and through the Spirit to apply that redemption to our hearts by bringing new life to us and by continuing to encourage us and motivate us and enable us to fight off that for which Christ has died. Friends, when the Spirit brought us new life, our obligation has changed. No longer according to the flesh, but by the Spirit we're put to death the deeds of the body. So a new obligation. That's the first evidence. But there is also a new status. The Spirit of God inside us not only motivates us, not only gives us a new obligation, the Spirit of God does something amazingly sweet. And that is, the Spirit of God affirms our new family status with God. And that new family status is that we are children of God, sons of God. Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now, the leading of the Spirit here should not be uh, interpreted to refer to the daily guidance that we get from the Spirit. It's not the guidance for everyday life so much as the guidance that Paul was talking about in the earlier verses. It's the Spirit's work to help us put to death the deeds of the body. So here, being led by the Spirit refers to a life that is governed by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, and not by the flesh. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner uh, says beautifully, the Spirit is the primary agent in Christian obedience. The Spirit is the primary agent in Christian obedience. It is His work in believers that accounts for their obedience. And the Spirit's governing role in in individuals, causing them to fight off sin and to live a a new obedience to God, is actually the evidence that they are children of God. 
that they are part of the family of God, that they are sons of God. In other words, whenever we see people guided by the Spirit in battling sin, there you see children of God. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now the spirit works in us and it's not a spirit of slavery, of bondage. Why would that language be used here? Because it's still talking about this battle with sin. It's no longer a spirit of bondage. And because it's no longer a spirit of bondage to sin, there's also no more fear. What's a fear about? This is not about generic fear. This is not about our battles with anxiety or panic. This is about the fear of God's judgment. We have no longer received a spirit of slavery, of bondage, that would hold us captive under the fear of God's judgment. But instead, instead we have received the spirit of adoption. Oh, what, what a change from being in bondage under the fear of God's judgment to now receive the spirit that confirms that we are children of God. Oh, friends, not only is it a change of status, but it's the affirmation that we are children. And what's the affirmation? The spirit enables us to cry out to God as Abba, Father. realize that some people do not have pleasant or positive connotations in their relationships with their dads or fathers. For some, the father that you've had was absent or perhaps abusive. Or you have just a broken relationship with your, fa- your earthly father. So this picture might be a difficult one for you to process. The word Abba is the Aramaic word that most likely was on the lips of Jesus. And in the Aramaic word, it was an endearing way of addressing the Father. Now, in English language, some have translated that as like daddy. That might be just a little bit of a missing of the tone. It's not so much daddy as much as dear father. It's an endearing way to show both respect, but also affection and trust. It's not so much closeness as much as that affection. Dear Father. And Paul is telling us that the Spirit enables us to cry out to him as Abba, dear Father. I love how Greg Gilbert, he has a wonderful book on, uh, entitled Assured. It's a wonderful book about Christian assurance. He helpfully points out that in this passage, and when we think about Christian assurance by the Spirit, he says that the, the witness of the Spirit inside of us is, is, a kind of, is not a kind of spiritual surprise party where the Spirit just pops up in you and surprises you, ha-ha, You're a child of God. It's not that kind of uh, 
easygoing cry. This is rather the cry in a wartime reinforcement, in a particular hardship. When our own voices, and this is Greg Gilbert's words, it's but a wartime reinforcement in the midst of a particular hardship, when our own voices have fallen weak, and what we need most is encouragement to endure. Maybe that is in the midst of suffering. Maybe it's in the fires of temptation. But in the midst of those battles, when we are not sure, are we a Christian or not? Because suffering, whether it's general suffering or suffering with sin, in the battle of sin, can easily cause our hearts to wonder, is my Christian life real or not? In those moments, God gives us a spirit that enables us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Friends, is your relationship to God an endearing relationship? Do you look to God with affection and trust? It's in the midst of difficulties and suffering when, when the suffering is too difficult that we wonder, is God for us? Is he really a God that we can trust as a dear, affectionate father? And Paul wants us to, tell, to remind us the spirit would cry in us, sometimes with words that we cannot fully understand. Sometimes the spirit just helps us just to cry out, God, Father, because that's all you can do. Well, friends, God is not just a service provider. God is not just a security guard. God is not just a deal maker. He's not a genie that we call on just on certain times of crises in our lives. For those who belong to the Father, to God, He is a dear Father with whom we can have an active relationship of affection and trust. And it's the Spirit of God who brings about that confirmation, that testimony, that witness inside of us. No matter how much I would try to convince you, no matter how many apologetic arguments I could bring you, no argument will convince you of that unless the Spirit of God testifies to your spirit that you're a child of God. And that happens as a result of trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. Oh, friends, to be a Christian is to be brought into God's family. That's why we call each other's brothers and sisters. The life of the church is the life of the family of God. That's why we gather regularly, week in, week out, in joys and in difficulties. When people get married and when people get buried, we gather, we show up, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. But above all, we can do these things with one another because the Spirit enables us to call God our Father. Can you? Can you call God your father? The status of children of God is a wonderful evidence, a wonderful witness that the Spirit of God works in us to know that we are Christians. We get not only a new 
status, a new family status, we also get a new family privilege. And this is the last point Paul makes in verse 17. If verses 12 to 13, we saw a new obligation. Uh, in verses 14 through 16, we saw a new family status. In verse 17, we see a new family privilege. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, why is Paul bringing up this third picture? We saw the picture of a debtor with a point of the obligation. We saw the picture of children or sons with his new family status. But why is Paul bringing up this third picture of an heir? What is significant about being an heir? Imagine if you found out that you were an heir of Steve Jobs or Warren Buffett. Would you go different out of this place today if you found out that you are an heir of any of these mega rich people? I bet you would. Why, why is it significant to be an heir of somebody? Because you get to inherit what they have or something of what they have. And God tells us in his word that if we are children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. Oh, friends, this is amazing for us to hear. This means that if God is glorified, we will inherit what he has. If God is eternal, we will inherit that eternality. If God is holy, we will be made partakers of his holiness in that absolute perfection of it in ways that we cannot hear now yet fully enjoy and experience i love how again tom schreiner says beautifully believers are heirs not merely of what god has promised but of god himself the supreme benefit of the covenant with abraham is not inheriting the land but having god as one's god as we heard yesterday in the message for Jim's funeral service, to call God our dwelling place. We inherit God himself. But Paul has another application here. He says not only if we're children, we are heirs, heirs of God. He says we are also co-heirs with Christ. Why would that be important for us? Because we will inherit, along with Jesus, all that God has promised to the Son. In the book of Revelation, God, we see that God is giving the kingdom to the Son to sit on the throne. And Jesus says to his followers, you will sit with me on my Father's throne. We will inherit in the dominion 
that God has promised to give to his son. That's amazing. We will get to inherit in the glorious dominion that God is giving to the son. But there is a provision. There is a clause, a small print section in this last verse, in this last part of verse 17. If we are provided that, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What is this suffering about? Well, first of all, it points back to verses 12 to 13. Remember that living according to the Spirit means putting to death by the Spirit the deeds of the, of the flesh. Friends, putting to death something in us is never fun. It's never pleasant to pull out the weeds of your life. Other people may like to pull it out for you. And they'll be glad to do it. But you're never glad to do it yourself. It's never fun. It, it takes suffering to fight off and put to death the deeds of the flesh. Putting sin to death involves suffering, or at least involves willingness to suffer. And those who are unwilling to suffer will have a hard time putting to death their sin. Those who are unprepared to suffer will have a hard time mortifying the deeds of the body. The suffering that Paul envisions here is, first of all, the suffering of what he has just talked about, about putting to death sin. But he will also deal with the suffering that comes up in the next passage that we will look at la next week about groaning under the suffering of a creation under the curse of sin. We will see that more next week. But the point is, just as Christ's path to glory was the path through the cross, through death, so also our path to glory is also through suffering. Christians are those who have died with Jesus to sin. The Spirit reminds us and enables us to put to death the deeds of the body. Imagine if someone wanted to be like Michael Phelps the uh, Olympic champion in swimming. He would have to realize that before embracing and, and receiving the glory of the gold medals, he would have to prepare himself for the reality that before the glory of the medals comes the renunciation of all the good, tasty foods of all the free time, because now there's a, a very rigorous regiment of diet and exercise and practice. Athletes know that before the gold comes, there must be the pain of training, of, of renouncing the, the normal things that their friends have done or do so that they can train for, their, for this competition. That's just an image that's just an image to recognize that there are things in our lives that we know that before we can enjoy the glory of something we desire, we must embrace ourselves for pain and suffering. In a similar way, Paul is making this argument, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, inheriting what God has promised to Jesus. If we are willing to suffer before the glory comes, to embrace the path of suffering before the glory comes. Oh, friends, 
this path of suffering is, first of all, a mindset we adopt for our fight with sin and the mindset we adopt as we face the difficulties of creation under the curse of sin. But the certainty of the Christian life is seen for us in this battle with sin as the Spirit confirms our adoption and reminds us of the promised glorious inheritance. A different obligation, a new family status, a new family privilege. Friends, the Spirit's work in us works to reassure us that we are sons and daughters of God. This work of assurance comes to us as we battle sin in our lives, not apart from it. May God help us cultivate and live in that closeness with God through the presence and work of His Spirit who helps us apply the gospel to our daily lives. Let's pray.